0: couple things I want to mention briefly, if you'll look in your bulletin, your worship guide for a moment. Uh, Under the youth category, we have something coming up a week from Wednesday that our student ministry calls a parent lab. Drew Hill will be here, who is especially gifted in uh, equipping parents about issues teenagers are are facing, especially with technology. I want to encourage you uh, parents of Future teens, present teens, or those who teach or involved with teens in any way to be here for that. And then on Christmas Eve, note our service times, 3, 4.30, and 8 p.m. We have discovered these afternoon times are particularly popular, so I have two of those this year. And uh, what a great time of year to invite a guest. Perhaps as is, is, is good a time of year as any, including Easter, to invite a guest who does not normally attend church. So I hope you'll consider that on Christmas Eve. I want to say thank you to all those of you who helped with Operation Christmas Child. Over 4,700 shoeboxes came through here um, week before last, and you guys volunteered. Thank you to Ken and Denise Jones and the many volunteers who packed these boxes that came from other churches and our church. You did a phenomenal job, and thank you for that. Now, how many of you felt like you ate too much food uh, on Thanksgiving Day? Anybody felt like you really overindulged and will repent of the sin of gluttony before we take communion this morning? I wanna to try to make you feel just a little bit better by telling you about a man who uh, who set out to uh, pass a test at a Bangkok uh, restaurant called Chris's Steak and Burgers. Um, they issued a challenge to anyone who could eat their 13 pound all beef burger, smothered in fried onion rings and loaded with mayonnaise. Comes in at 10,000 calories, but if you can eat it in nine minutes, you get the reward of 10,000 bot. Now, 10,000 baht in U.S. dollars is only 300 bucks, so not that great of a deal. But uh, the, the, the gentleman who tried said, um, you know, I may eat a hamburger again at some point in life, <laughs> but it will be quite a few years. Hopefully, he didn't overindulge like that. I want to let you know that we will celebrate the Lord's Supper communion this morning. And um, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's our custom to pray for you. If you've come here today and something is weighing on you, you have a need for yourself or a family member, just know that we're here to pray with you and for you at the tables in front or in back later this morning. So be thinking about that as we continue. Well, today is the first day of the Advent season. If you're not familiar with the term Advent, it has to do with the coming of Jesus, from a Latin word, to come. The Christian church has typically celebrated the coming of Jesus, the Advent season, four Sundays prior to Christmas Eve. And this year, we're celebrating Advent with the theme of shadows, shadows of one to come. As we continue through the Christian seasons, and by Christian seasons I mean not only Advent and Christmas, but Lent and Easter and the special seasons of the year, uh, we are calling it House of Shadows. And I'll explain in a moment why that is. But if you'd like to pick up one of these beautiful uh, guides at our resource center today, they're free, maybe take one for household, but it'll guide you through this theme of House of Shadows, not only in Advent, but on into the new year as well. Now, you may be wondering, why are you calling this Shadows, House of Shadows, Shadows of One to Come? I want to talk about that just for a moment. You'll see a few verses on the screen first from the book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, said to them, uh, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, some of these being Old Testament ceremonial worship observations. These, he writes, are a shadow, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ their shadows. The writer of Hebrews, writing to the church there, was talking about priests in the Old Testament um, forms of worship who offered gifts, sacrifices according to the law, the Old Testament law, sacrificial laws. The writer goes on to say, they, these priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. These Old Testament sacrifices brought to the altar, brought to the tabernacle, to the temple, they're a shadow pointing forward to something. I think we could define the word shadow as it's used here in these verses as a foreshadowing or the indication of a future event, looking forward to something. So much of the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. After Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, he appeared on the road to Emmaus and began a conversation with two of his followers, but they did not recognize him at the time. And they began talking to him about the events that had recently occurred in Jerusalem, the crucifixion of Christ, and now the rumored resurrection of Christ. And then he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have written, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If there is one conversation in in the history of humanity, I would love to have heard. It would have been that conversation. Jesus interpreting to them from Moses. And when, when you see the word Moses in the New Testament, it typically refers to the law, the books that are credited to Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, the things concerning himself. There are many shadows of the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at the very first shadow, the promised offspring. The first shadow in Scripture immediately follows the first sin. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, and if you've never read the book of Genesis, I'd urge you to, to read it, particularly this month during Advent. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the record of God creating all that exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God has created this beautiful place for them to live and these beautiful trees and this fruit. And he gives one command. He says, you can eat of every tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die that's the command of chapter 2 we move into chapter 3 and the serpent appears and the first words out of the mouth of the serpent are did god actually say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did god really say that This first statement out of the mouth of the serpent gives us a clue to Satan's work throughout history. Casting doubt on the authority and the integrity of God's word. Did God really say that? You really got to do that? Well, you know the story if you've ever read the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Their sin broke the beautiful fellowship with God they had enjoyed. And God had said, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. They did not die physically that day, but their spiritual death occurred and the separation and their fellowship from God. And God immediately pronounces judgment on the deceiver, the serpent, the devil, and the first shadow appears. And the first foreshadowing, I think, is this the offspring or the seed of the woman becomes a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. I believe the advent of Jesus is predicted immediately as God addresses the first sin of humanity. You heard it a moment ago when it was read here on the stage. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The singular he is very significant here. It's not they, all the children the woman ever has, they're going to step on you. It's not the the plural, but the singular he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the New Testament book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is reflecting upon later promises that would be made to Abraham. And he uses this word offspring in some of your versions of the Bible. It may simply read uh, seed, seed of the woman or seed of Abraham, offspring of the woman, offspring of Abraham. Writing to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural that is, referring to many, but referring to one in your offspring who is Christ. As soon as judgment for sin is pronounced against the serpent, before God has even pronounced judgment against Adam and Eve, God has promised one that would come to bruise or break the serpent's authority, his power, crushes head. And the first shadow appears. But there's more, I think, in this first shadow. It is a foreshadowing that there would be enmity between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom, and Jesus would ultimately crush his power. And again, this is far more than just a, a natural uh, human dislike for snakes. There's this actual enmity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And there is, I believe, a prediction here that one who would come, the seed or the offspring of a woman, ultimately that woman would be named Mary. Satan would do all he could to tempt Jesus, to lead him astray from his mission, to destroy him, and ultimately... He would bruise him on the cross. But in so doing, Jesus would crush his power. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament explains why the advent of Jesus came about, why Jesus was born as a baby, why he came as flesh and blood. Hebrews chapter 2 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means... Those who would be the children of God, that's you and me, if you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You're one of these children of His. Since we're flesh and blood, human beings, Jesus became flesh and blood. He left heaven when it was born a human baby to become like one of us. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus accomplished the defeat of Satan through his death and resurrection. The victory is certain. There's no question about it. But it is still being worked out by his church by His people. We are the body of Christ on earth. And as we are spreading the gospel, we are continuing to contribute to the victory of the kingdom of God. But we live in this world of conflict between the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and the kingdom of God. And so the Apostle Paul gives these words of assurance to Christians who are suffering as we live in the middle of this spiritual battle, this conflict. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think the Apostle Paul here perhaps has in mind the shadow of Genesis 3.15 about the crushing of the serpent's head. Because we, the body of Christ, as we live in our devotion to Jesus and spread the truth of his word, his gospel throughout the world, we look to this ultimate crushing of Satan. Satan under the feet of Christ and his church. I wanna take a moment now to fast forward from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The passage we're going to look at is Revelations chapter 12 and it's a passage that I think reflects back on some of what we see in the first shadow uh, continuing forward in history. The Apostle John gives us these words, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We'll read later that these stars are representative of angelic beings. We would consider uh, the demons that fell with uh, Lucifer, with Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And I believe this refers to Jesus. But her child was called up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And now we find out who the great dragon is. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The great dragon of Revelation is the ancient serpent of Genesis, the devil, Satan, Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Then the dragon became furious with a woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the stand of the sea. Now, what does all of this mean for you and me? Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Victory for his kingdom is not in doubt. It is certain. It is sure. But as Jesus' followers here on earth, we live in the midst of the battle, the ongoing battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. As we boldly serve Jesus with selfless devotion, we share his gospel, we participate in the bringing of others into the kingdom of God, and there is conflict in which we live. Back to the Garden of Eden, though. The offspring of the woman, I believe, foreshadows the advent of Jesus. This enmity foreshadows the conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's, ultimately Jesus crushing His power. But there's a third thing here I want us to note in the passage we're considering today. And that is that God himself would provide atonement for human sin until the great sin bearer would come. Atonement has to do with the covering over of human sin. Now, why why would I say that? Notice very carefully Genesis 3 and verse 21. And by the way, in verse 7 of this chapter, Adam and Eve, when they ate the forbidden fruit, had already sewed together uh, fig leaves to cover themselves. But in verse 21, we read these Words that are so interesting. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, skins, and clothed them. God himself killed an innocent animal. God shed the blood of an animal. This is, I believe, the first example in Scripture of substitution. That is, God in his mercy, not requiring the life of a human for our sin, but allowing the judgment to fall upon a sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, we will see sacrificial laws. They seem unusual to our eyes when we read these. People being called to offer sacrifices of a lamb or of a ram, shedding of the blood of this animal. The book of Leviticus is all about these sacrifices. It points out to us the awesome holiness of God and the need for a covering for human sin. And Leviticus 17.11 reads, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. These sacrifices pointed ahead to something, or rather to someone. The seed of the woman, the offspring, who would one day fulfill the words of Scripture that he would be the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Jesus on the cross, when he shed his blood, became the last ever sacrifice for sin. He bore our judgment in his body, on the cross, on the tree. He redeemed us by his blood. It was a covering for our sin. So central is this to the ministry of Jesus, so central to his advent and his coming to earth as a child that he would ultimately take our place on the cross as the great substitute where he would bear our sin, bear our judgment forever, so that we could stand before God, cleansed, forgiven, and call God our Father in heaven. So central is this to his mission that he has given us a way to always reflect upon it deeply when we come together in worship. And it's by celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. You see the tables here uh, with the bread and the juice. In a moment, we will Uh, pass those to you, but first I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul about the significance of this holy thing we're about to do. The Apostle Paul writes, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he gives some words of warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think that means we, we must take this quite seriously. It's not some mere religious ritual that we go to because we're in a Christian church. But it's saying if we choose to take of the bread and drink the cup, that yes, by faith I have personally received the benefits of Jesus when he gave his body on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of my sins." He is my Savior, He is my Lord. And if you are uncertain about that today, what better time to become certain than when celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you are prepared to turn from sin and your control over your own life and bow the knee to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And so, I'll invite you to pray with me about that. Uh, Now, I'd also like to take a few moments of silence for for each of us to just uh, let the Lord speak to us if there's some sin we need to confess, some person we need to forgive, and then uh, I'll give instructions about how communion will be served. So would you join me as we pray? Father, I pray for any here today who may not be certain of their own Salvation. Uh, And if that pertains to you this morning, and if you are indeed willing to turn from sin and self-rule to the saving work and lordship of Jesus to become his follower, I would invite you to simply say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross to bear the penalty for my sin. I believe you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. Lord, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Be my Savior, be my Lord right now. Now for others here who know you're believers, let us take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us in any way he knows we need to hear as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we remember your promise. You said if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we partake of communion now, would you bring your power in our midst, Lord? Would you enable the one who has difficulty forgiving someone else to forgive them today by your grace and power? Would you bring healing to the soul of that one who is in pain or the body of that one who is hurting? Would you renew faith for the one who feels distant? Would you revitalize that one, Lord? And would you so work in each one of us when we leave here this morning we would long to know you better and love you more and make that the greatest pursuit of our lives and we pray in the holy name of jesus amen